hey, we have been in the process uh, for the last month or so of digging into a sermon series we're calling Dollars and Cents. And we've been talking about this, uh, you know, off-limits topic of money. When I was a kid, my father taught me very clearly, you don't talk to people about money, right? Did any of you get that? You never say to someone, hey, how much do you earn, right? That's the, it's not okay. And you don't even say, hey, what'd you pay for that new car, right? Um, there's just, I was taught as a kid, money is an incredibly private matter and nobody should have any interest in anybody else's money situation and so we don't talk about money. And then I came to know Jesus and I start reading the Bible and I'm like, oh my goodness, Jesus is rude. Because... <laughs> He's talking about money all the time, and I thought, what is going on with this? And it has been my experience of all these years in the body of Christ that still, to this day, we're all kind of awkward about it, we're all kind of uncomfortable about it, and I'm just thinking, you know what, if God thinks it's important enough that he's going to place such a practical matter as money, as such a high leverage topic in scripture, then we need to talk about it. We need to teach it in the church. We need to encourage one another in this area of our lives. We need to, um, we need to listen to what God has to say. And so, you know, the thing is, we've set ourselves up, I think, a lot of us to this point where we're just taking the wrong view of life in general. Even as Christians, we have this tendency, I think, to think that, you know, our life is made up of these various parts, right? There's these various categories in our lives. So, for instance, you know, your family life or maybe your marriage, your parenting, those are separate issues. Uh, your finances, your career, maybe your education, maybe your interests or your hobbies, those are all just separate things. We keep those kind of things separate and then and the wheel of our life keeps spinning around and those things come up. And for Christians, one of those, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a wheel, right? It's like a wagon wheel. If you remember, like, look at this. That is actually a picture of uh, a wheel from Dave's first car. Um, and and, <laughs> and we, we tend to look at our lives like this, each spoke representing one of those practical areas of life. And for Christians, Jesus is a spoke. So Sundays roll around and Jesus gets our attention and we worship and even, even we, we dedicate a part of our day to spend time with Jesus. We read his word, we pray. Maybe we uh, come to a Bible study, we're involved in some ministry. That's because as the wheel turns around, the Jesus spoke just comes around every so often. And when the Jesus spoke comes around, we do Jesus stuff. The interesting thing though, is that the scripture doesn't describe life for the Christian like that at all. The, the Bible describes life for the Christian as though every one of those spokes is a different area of our lives. Again, your family, your finances, your sex life, your thought life, your career, your marriage, all of those things are spokes. Jesus is the hub. See, we've got to change the way we think about this whole thing. If we can understand that Jesus is the central factor of our lives and that every single practical thing in our lives connects to that hub. And if there are things in my life that I cannot in good conscience say I'm willing to connect to the hub of Jesus, then those things probably don't belong in my life, right? And, and so Jesus goes, listen, when I come into your life, <clears throat> I am not going to be a part of your life. I'm not going to be a visitor. I'm going to be central in your life. And that's the only way that he does it. In fact, he said it like this. He said in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches, right? He who, uh, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And I love the fact that Jesus has this insight where he goes, he goes, you know, apart from me, you can do nothing in your religious life. Except that's not what he said. He doesn't say, apart from me, you could do nothing of spiritual significance. That's not what he says. He says, apart from me, let's see if you've got it, you can do nothing. Let's try that again. Just go ahead and elbow the person next to you, okay? Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me, 
bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. 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 That means he's saying every aspect of your life, all the practical stuff needs to be empowered by Jesus or it is not going to be successful. Now, you can redefine success if you want. You could pretend that a C paper is an A paper but, uh, or a C life is an A life. But Jesus says, if you want to have an abundant life, I need to be central because apart from me, you can do nothing. That's why even though I'm making a point every week of, making, of saying, hey, look, I know this is awkward. I know the church hasn't always been good about talking about money. I know that some of us have some scars and some suspicions where this comes from. Even though I freely admit all of that, I want to say, I'm talking to you guys directly about money without apology because Jesus says, I care about your money. And so it makes a difference. He loves us. He wants us to have life abundantly. And he wants, he wants complete access to every area of our lives. I was reading this week about um, Sam Houston. I love U.S. history. And Sam Houston, of course, is a big uh, character down in Texas in the early days of our country. Uh, and I was reading about him. And he, he had a fascinating life. He, he um, was the governor of Tennessee... He was the president of Texas when Texas had a president. And then he became the governor of Texas after Texas became a state. Later, he was the U.S. senator uh, representing Texas. Uh, he was married three different times. He actually grew up among the Cherokee. And so he was married three different times. His first marriage, for reasons no one knows, lasted 11 weeks, and that was it. His second marriage, he went back. He actually resigned as the Tennessee governor and went back to live among the Native Americans. And he was married there in a Cherokee ceremony. And after many years, that wife died. And then he went back into public life and he met his third wife, who was a, who was a, a sincere follower of Jesus. And after meeting his third wife, after a period of her influence in his life, he gave his life to Christ. So here's this guy, he's rich, he's famous, he's powerful, he's rough and ready, he's fought the Indians, he's that guy, and now he's a Christian. And uh, his, he, he had this conviction in his heart, and so he followed his conviction, and he, he, he was a part of this little Baptist church in Texas. Even then, Texas was filled with Baptist churches. So he, he was part of this Baptist church in Texas, and he decided that um, since God had blessed him with so many resources, he was going to take personal responsibility for half the church's budget every year. And so he gave a lot of money, met, met the half of the budget needs every year. And his friends thought he was a lunatic. And they said, what are you doing? Are you, have you lost your mind? Are you crazy? And then I ran across this quote, and this is why I told you the whole story. His quote to them was this, when I got baptized my pocketbook got baptized with me. And I just love that. I thought, wow, he actually has this idea that when I'm like uh, uh, submerged in the waters of baptism and washed and set free and I identify with Christ and I come into a relationship with Christ, that every aspect of my life comes into a relationship with Christ. So that's the foundational concept on which we're talking about this issue of money. Every aspect of our lives comes into relationship with Christ. So week one, we talked about um, money and the heart. And, and we said, you know what? Uh, Jesus himself said you can only have one master. You cannot serve both God and money. And if you try to do that, you're going to fail. You can only have one master. You can only give your heart to God. If you give your heart to money, it's going to be a disaster. Uh, if you didn't hear that message, you can find it on our website or the podcast or any number of ways on YouTube. Second thing is, um, second week was the money and the mind. And in money and the mind, we talked about a mindset that is biblical about money. And that mindset is simply stewardship. You don't own anything. You're the steward of all of God's stuff. And God calls us to use his stuff for his glory. We talked about that in week two. Last week, we got specific. We talked about generosity in our message on the money and the hands. 
And we said, you know, the money is supposed to travel through our hands. God pours blessings into our lives. We are an extension of God's grace to other people. We are not just recipients of God's grace. So we talked about generosity as a way of life, um, generosity to the whole world. Today, we're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about money and the body. So we, we went uh, heart, head, hands, and body. This week, we're going to talk about money and the body, and specifically, we're talking about the body. We're talking about the biblical metaphor of the body of Christ. We're talking about the relationship between the money that God has entrusted to each of us as individuals and the calling that he's given us in a local church, okay? So that's where we're going today, and we're going to try to get some biblical insight on that topic. And this is where everybody gets a little squirmy, and everybody gets a little nervous, and you're, some of you are thinking, yeah, for three weeks he buttered us up and made us think we don't have to worry, and now he's going to hit us probably eight offerings today. I know how this is going to go. That's not the case, um, but we are going to talk about what God's Word says about how the body of Christ operates as a, as a unit when it comes to this issue of money. So when we talk about the body in this context, we're talking about the church because the, the Bible uses this metaphor for the church over and over. It says the church is the body of Christ. It's a beautiful metaphor because we know as human beings, you have a body and your body is made up of all these different parts, right? You have kidneys and you have a liver and you have a foot and you have an eye and you have hair follicles and fingernails and all these things that in and of themselves are just sort of unique to themselves but put together in the body and everything working together, they do something glorious. They empower us to be healthy and accomplish great things with our lives, right? And he says the, the, the people of God is like that. We're like a body. So let's begin by making one thing absolutely clear. The church, the body of Christ, is God's plan A to spread the message of God and the love of God to people all around the world. We are God's plan for that. And I've said this many of times, the church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. So if we sit back and go, ah, I don't want to do that, God is not coming up with a plan better than the church to reach the world with the love of God. Now, let's just, let's just take an honest look at this. There are billions, with a B, billions of people in the world today who have no saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, it's kind of easy to forget that. There are billions of people, the vast majority of the people on earth, have no saving relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, countless millions of them have never even heard of Jesus and his saving work. And so for them, the stakes could not be higher and what is God's plan for this gigantic problem? The church. And if that doesn't work, what's his second plan? There is no second plan. The church. God is going to use us to reach the lost. Those people who don't know the Lord, most of them don't even know it, but they have a desperate need for the church to act like the church. They have a desperate need for us to actually be unselfish. They have a desperate need for us to actually bring the good news to them. They have a desperate need for us to actually be Jesus in Jesus' physical absence on the earth. So while he walked the earth, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. But before he left, he gathered his followers and he said to them, you are the light of the world. And if you're a follower of Christ, you are the light of the world. You are the church. You are the plan. We are the plan. So people have spiritual needs, but beyond those spiritual needs, there are countless practical needs. Just, just things like food and shelter and education and freedom and medical care and friendship and housing. And Matthew 25 says, as Jesus speaks about this, he says, you know, by the way, I know that a lot of you call yourselves followers of Jesus, but um, if you're claiming to be a follower of Jesus 
and you don't have anything to do with meeting those practical needs and the people that Jesus cares so much about, don't kid yourself, you're not a follower of Jesus. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. He, he says there are sheep and there are goats, and the sheep are recognized by the fact that they're out meeting the needs of people, and the goats are recognized by the fact that they're sitting back judging people and not meeting anybody's needs. So the body of Christ is God's one and only plan to spread the message of Christ and to extend the love of God to people everywhere. So because those stakes are so high and because God's mandate is so clear, we need to regularly teach on this topic. We need to learn in this area. We need to grow in this area and become more faithful. And generosity needs to be a reality as it relates to the individual believer and the local church. Now, before I go any further with this, I need to just stop and say this. This is a family conversation, okay? Um, and, and most of the people in the room on, at Grace Fellowship on a Sunday morning are part of the church family. But every week, there are people who are visitors. They're here for the first time, the second time, third time. They're checking this out. They're maybe checking out Jesus, trying to find out whether the claims of the gospel have any value or any meaning, or they're, they're looking for a church, but this isn't really your church family. So I just want to say to you, if that's you, take a deep breath. You're off the hook, okay? I, this message is for you. I want it to bless you. I hope you learn from it. But I'm not talking to you right now. What's happening is you're sitting in on a family meeting. And that could be a little awkward, and I get that, and so I apologize for that. But, but this is a family discussion. We're having this intimate, personal family discussion about money. Now, this is the last week on this topic, so come back next week. We're doing a series on the parables of Jesus. It's going to be off the hook. It's going to be incredible, and it's going to be, it's going to be the kind of thing you want to bring visitors to and all that kind of stuff, but if you're visiting with us today, just relax. Nobody's on your case. We're not asking you for anything, but you're sitting in on a family meeting, okay? Now, last week, we talked about 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And if you have your Bibles with you, you're going to want to get to 2 Corinthians because we're going to spend time today in 2 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 8, and 1 Corinthians 16. So if you just get your finger there in Corinthians somewhere, you're going to be in the right neighborhood as we go. Last week, we looked at this uh, in 2 Corinthians 9. Remember, we said Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, hey, listen, uh, I'm going to be coming and I'm going to take an offering when I come. And so he gives them instructions about this offering and how they should give. And we saw that. And especially I want to remind you what we said last week. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Paul says basically this. He says, listen, if you're going to give, I want you to give not under compulsion, not because somebody is pushing you to do it, I want you to give out of a sincere heart because the Spirit has laid upon your heart what you should give. So we're not going to do this, uh, if I can get a fiery enough preacher up here, the offering will be even better thing. That's not what we're going to do. In fact, he goes, I don't even want to talk to you about this when I get there. Take the offering before I come. Um, but, but what you need to know is that you need to give from your heart. You need to give based on what God has called you to give. Don't let some preacher tell you how much to give. Don't let somebody tell you if you don't give this percentage or if you don't give this amount that you're somehow not faithful in your giving. You need to seek God if you have a personal relationship with him and always be saying, Lord, all of this money is yours. Remember the bag of donuts? God owns all the donuts, right? All of this money is yours, Lord. And so what would you have me do with it? And that needs to be our spirit as we, as we move forward in this, as we talk about offerings in the local church, because too often it's all about manipulation and guilt and control, and it's not supposed to be about that at all. And, and so it was there in the local church that he said to them in 2 Corinthians, um, he says, listen, give in the local church. He tells them when they get together, they're going to give. And he tells them basically when you're giving to the church, you're not really giving to the church. You're giving to the Lord through the church. So don't get caught up in, in giving to the church because of some great appeal. And God promises that when they do give to the church, 
based on God's prompting and not somebody's appeal, that, that God is going to meet all of their needs. So that's last week's message. You can, you can look that up online. But today we're going to talk about partnering financially with the local church. And I want to be clear, this is not a message about you and Grace Fellowship, okay? It's not a message about you and Grace Fellowship. This is a message about you and Jesus, This is not a fundraising message. This is a discipleship message, okay? This is about your relationship with the Lord, not your relationship with the local church. The only reason we're even talking about your relationship with the local church is that that's the way the Lord talks about it, okay? But this is about you and the Lord. Some of you might be visiting today. You are not a member of this local church. You're not a part of this church family, but you have a church family somewhere else. When you get back home, you're going to be back in your church family. God's talking to you about you and Jesus, not you and this church or you and that church. He's talking about you and him. And, and so let me, let me go so far. I've been thinking about this this week, but, and this is going to sound crazy, and probably our treasurer is going to faint when he hears this, but let me, let me go so far as to put it this way. If you can't feel really genuinely good about giving generously through Grace Fellowship, I strongly encourage you and offer you my complete blessing to go find the church where you're supposed to be and go be a part of a church that you can feel great about and go be a part of a church where you do believe in the mission and the vision that God has given to that congregation and and do that, please. It is not, I don't worry at all. Are we gonna keep the lights on in here? I'm never concerned about that. I'll just tell you this. If we can't pay the light bill and the lights go off, I'll be on the parking lot preaching on Sundays, okay? You guys meet me there. I'm not worried about this. But I will say this, if in fact you don't feel good about what Grace Fellowship is all about in our mission, if you don't feel like you can trust the leadership, if you're not sure that we're doing the right things and all that kind of stuff or that this isn't even the right fit for you, go find a church that is. But know this, when you get there, God's going to ask you to give generously there, okay? So this isn't about local churches, This is about us and God. And I guess we can just sort of leave that at that. I don't worry about these financial issues at all. And some probably would think I should worry about it more, but I've, I've, well, I've only been a part of this church for 30 years, so maybe it'll change. But what I've found so far in 30 short years is is that everything God has called us to, he's provided for without exception. There's never been a single exception. And so, if, in fact, <laughs> shameless commercial. Um, next, next month in October, every Sunday afternoon, we're doing a thing called Next Steps. Every single one of you is being asked to come. Uh, and in the Next Steps meeting, one of the many things that you're going to get is an unbelievable picture of how God has provided for this church down through the decades. And it's just an awesome story. So again, come to the next steps thing. You'll hear about that, but you'll find out why I don't worry about this. Okay, didn't I say I was gonna talk about 2 Corinthians? I said that, right? Okay, 2 Corinthians 9. He's asking them to give. Why? Because there's a need. He's asking them to give because there's a need. God actually calls us to give because God is about meeting needs. And there's a need. Paul had already made the Corinthians aware of this huge need that they were giving to meet in Jerusalem. In fact, all of Judea was facing this um, famine. And he tells them they already knew about this. And um, on top of that, the, the Christians there in Israel we're not only facing a famine where there wasn't rain and there wasn't crops and there wasn't food. So just picture the Great Depression in the United States. It was a really bad financial time in Judea. On top of that, most of the people who had become Christians in Judea had been ostracized from their lives when they came to Christ. That is to say, they lost their jobs. They lost their family support. 
they, many of them lost their friends. That's why when you read the first couple chapters of Acts and you see how everyone is sharing with everyone and they're all moving into each other's homes and they're all spending time together and they're all taking care of each other, it's because all these people were suddenly out of work and homeless and it's at a time where there's a famine, okay? So there's a huge need in Jerusalem and the church is under attack. So in 2 Corinthians, I told you I'd get there, but before we get to 2 Corinthians, go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, okay? 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so do you also. So in other words, Paul is going around to all the churches that he has planted, and he's asking them all to participate in meeting this need, okay? And he says, so what did they do? Here's what you do. Verse 2. On the first day of every week... Each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gifts to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Okay? So he's saying, when the time comes, I want you to have already taken the offering. Oh, really? When do you want us to take the offering? He says, on the first day of every week. What's the first day of the week? Good. You guys are awake. First day of the week is Sunday, right? Every time when you get together on Sunday, because the church is already gathering on Sundays, right? Just as churches typically gather on Sundays for worship in our society today, that's what they did then. And the reason is not because it's a Sabbath. Saturday is the Sabbath. It's because it was the Lord's Day. That was the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and they've been celebrating and worshiping and gathering for worship on Sunday ever since. And so he says, on the first day of the week, when you already have your worship service, when you come together for the worship service in your local congregation, I want you to give money for this cause and set it aside so that when I come, you will have already been giving this offering on a regular basis, and there won't be a problem for me to take the offering. Now, skip ahead to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 couple pages to the right. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Remember, he said, I already instructed the church of Galatia. The churches of Macedonia would include that. And, he, and now they've taken those offerings in these other churches. And he says, I want you to know how that went. Verse 2, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. Just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and all earnestness and in love, we inspired you. See that you abound in this gracious work also. Now, I don't know how you read this, but I just put these two passages together and my background forces it through a filter and I see this coming from a football coach. And, and I see this as a halftime speech that a football coach is making, right? He's saying to the Corinthians, let me tell you how good the Galatians are at this, right? It's like the football coach at halftime, and he's trying to motivate his team, and so he puts the defense over on this side, and he puts the offense over on this side, and then he gets in, and he talks to the defense, and he's like, you guys... I don't know what you're doing. I don't know how you've been sleeping through the whole first half, but it is about time to wake up. The offense is breaking their necks for you guys. They are killing it. They're leaving everything on the field, and you guys are just loafing. I don't see any hustle from you. If you guys don't change, we're going to lose this game. Be more like the offense. Now, other coaches talk to them. And then he goes over, and he gets to these guys on the offense, and he goes, oh my gosh, I just talked to the defense. Those guys are bleeding over there. Those guys left their hearts on the field. Are you going to let them be the only part of this team that does any good work? Are you going to be the only ones? And, and he gives them this back and forth speech where he's saying, listen, other Christians are doing well with this, and I'm sure you're going to do great too. 
don't worry, I'm coming, and I'll bet you after I take the offering from you guys, I'll be telling the other churches, man, you should see how the Corinthians did it, right? And he is like pumping them up, and he is trying to get them to understand that this is a local church thing, which means it's individual members of that local church body, but it's also a universal church thing, and that we are all in this thing together. Now, remember what I said earlier. Grace Fellowship exists to be the light of the world. We are called to love one another. We are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And love is a complicated concept. So let me give you a working definition that I just really like. Here's my working definition for love. Love is meeting needs. It's not about warm fuzzies. It's not about, oh man, I just tingle when she walks through the room. It's not any of that. It is about meeting needs. In fact, Jesus pounds this home over and over and over again when he says, how can you call yourselves followers of God when you see people with desperate practical needs and you just walk past them? If you're going to represent God, you have to meet needs. What do you think I meant when I said love everyone? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So love is meeting needs, and that's what we're about as a church. Grace Fellowship exists to glorify God by meeting needs. Love God, love people, that's meet needs, and change the world. That's why we exist. So, so let me just be like super blunt. People need Jesus. People need Jesus. People need to be loved. People need to be cared for. People need to be encouraged. They need to be challenged at times. They need to be discipled. People are hungry physically and metaphorically. People need counseling. Families need support. Children need to be loved and nurtured and taught and strengthened. Hungry people need like a meal. And homeless people need a place to stay. Um, people in prison need visits. Lonely people need friends. The list goes on and on. What I'm saying is you don't get to love theoretically and not love practically. That's what God is calling us to as the church. And as a local church, we're called to participate in meeting all of these kinds of needs. So at Grace Fellowship, that's what we do. That's why we're here. That's what we're about. So let me just give you some four examples. For example, at Grace Fellowship, we fund children's ministries in Africa. It's something we've been doing for decades. It's something we believe deeply in, and it has dramatically changed lives, and the world is being changed one person at a time as we give extensive, significant amounts of money, time, and energy, and focus on meeting the needs of children who are in Africa, who are in desperate, desperate need. And we go, you know what? Instead of buying my kid another video game system, I'm going to make sure that a kid in Uganda gets an education and a meal and, and introduced to Jesus. And, and so we're heavily involved in ministry to children in Africa. In fact, we support missionaries all around the world. There's missions happening every day related to the money that goes in the offering plate when we give offerings at Grace Fellowship. We invest in students and teachers in the public school system right here in Duarte because there's huge needs there. We invest in feeding the poor right here in Duarte because there's huge needs there. We support a crisis pregnancy center right here in Duarte because there's huge needs there. A food distribution center that is local that distributes food to the hungry. We partner with them because there's a huge need. We provide ministry to families, ministry to children, ministry to teenagers because there's a huge need. We're not just here as a church so that we can have a building that's nice and comfortable that we come to and enjoy for ourselves. We're not here for that. 
We're here to bring glory to God. We exist to meet needs and change the world. So I'm not exaggerating when I say that every penny that is donated to Grace Fellowship is actually donated through Grace Fellowship to the Lord for the work of the ministry that takes place everywhere. There's not some giant pot of gold sitting there that we've been storing up because we take an offering every week. All of that money is going to meet needs. And listen, specific needs come and go. I, we, we were meeting a whole bunch of needs in the 80s that we weren't meeting in the 90s. We're meeting a whole bunch of needs in the 90s we weren't meeting in the 2000s. Times change, needs get met, new needs arise. All the needs change. But God is still about meeting needs. And that's what God's called us to in the local church. Now, a lot of us are fine with all of this. And some of you haven't had any objections to anything I've said in four weeks about this. And you're like, amen, I agree with you, I believe you. But honestly, I just don't have much. Like, I'm really struggling financially myself. I don't have much. To which I just want to say, that is okay. You think God doesn't know that? God knows. And in fact, he doesn't distribute wealth evenly. To one he gave five talents, to one he gave two, and to one he gave one. Remember that a couple weeks ago? Like, it's not... They didn't all get the same. And, and God gets it. He knows that that's how it works. Think about this. You say, well, I don't have much. You know what? There was a little boy with five biscuits and two sardines. We heard about him last week. He didn't have much. But what he had was placed into the hands of Jesus. And in the hands of Jesus, little becomes much. This isn't about amounts. The story is told... Um, of these two men, friends, who um, went on a pleasure trip in a small private plane and they were out over the Pacific Ocean when their plane lost an engine and ultimately crashed into the water. And miraculously, they both survived. And as their, as their wreckage was sinking to the bottom of the ocean, they saw in the distance an island which they swam for and made it, only to find that they are now stranded on a deserted island. And the one guy, as soon as he gets there, starts coming up with a plan to get rescued. He builds a fire so he could do some kind of smoke signal thing. And he, he writes out, help us on the beach out of seashells. And he is running around sweating and frustrated. And the other guy is laying on the beach with his hands behind his head, working on his tan. And the, the guy who's doing all the work gets upset and he finally comes up to the guy and he says, what is wrong with you? Can't you see we're stuck on the side of an island and there's no one here to help us. We are going to die if we don't get rescued. Why are you not more worried? And he said, let me just tell you something. I make about $100,000 a week. And every week when I get my check, I write a check to my church for 10%. My pastor will find me. <laughs> Guaranteed. Relax. Build a hammock. My pastor is already on his way. I guarantee you. So, so there are people like that who can give enormous amounts of money, and yet you could be giving an enormous amount of money and have less sacrifice than a person who is getting two or three bucks together and putting it in and giving an offering or helping someone with it, right? Remember Jesus told that story about the widow and her, and her two little coins, the widow's mite? And, and he said, you know, I was at the treasury and I saw these wealthy men coming and giving large amounts of money and going back to sit down in this ornate, beautiful building. He said, but then I saw this one woman and, and she, she just came and she put these two little coins that amount to a penny in the offering. And he said to his disciples, she gave more than all of the others because she gave all that she had, right? What is he saying? He's saying this is not about amounts. We've got to get it through our head. God's not broke. He's not going, where am I going to get the money? That's not our God. It's not about that. It's about giving our hearts to God in worship. And so I wanted to, to kind of put all this together and give you like a tangible reminder. So 
Um, I'm going to have the ushers come forward. They've got these cards that they're going to hand out to you, right? And on these cards, can I have one of those, Mike? Sorry. Thanks. So they look like this. And on there is a widow's mite. Now, we did an archaeological dig in the backyard and we found these. And so they're probably worth a lot, but we're giving them to you, okay? Um, but this is to remind us, on the front is the story of the widow's mite and a little uh, conversation about it. On the back, it says, when you invest through Grace Fellowship, you're partnering with us to help realize dreams like outreach, kids, youth, uh, growth track, community life, missions, worship, and it just gives a, a little bit of details about some of what happens with the money that God has called us to give when we give through Grace Fellowship, okay? So this is for you. Take it home. You make it a bookmark in your Bible. You put it on your refrigerator. You, I don't know, do something with it. But it's here to remind you that that giving is not about amounts, it's about worship. And let me just take a second here to say this. It's about worship. And what that means is, when we, when we do our offerings on Sunday mornings, um, it's not accidental that we do it right in the middle of when we're worshiping in song. We do it for a reason, and the reason is we want all of us to connect our giving to our worship. We want us to be reminded on a regular basis that when we give, we give as worshipers, not as people who are funding a project. And so that's why we give. And, and so with that said, let me just say this, as times have changed and finances have become digitalized and we now have online giving, we have text to give, and you can give, have, instruct your bank to send checks. All of that stuff is done. And so a lot of us don't even give on a Sunday morning because our giving is being done electronically in some other way, right? Which is awesome. And if that's how you're giving, God bless you, keep it up. But here's the one thing I would say. You're gonna have to be extra careful not to disassociate your giving from your worship. Because for the rest of us, we're doing it right as we're lifting up songs of worship and praise to God. And so it's easier to connect that in our minds. But if you just set up something so that every time you get a paycheck, some money goes out, you might forget all about it. And don't stop and make it an act of worship. And be careful about that. Because if, if it becomes something less than worship, it's not the kind of giving that God has called us to do. So better to... to, to be sincere and focused in your worship. So you're going to have to find a way to do that in the 21st century where everything is digitalized. So for me, when, when I give, I stop and pray. I give at home. I write a check. I know some of you are like, what's a check? But there's some old people like me still do that, and I write checks. And I write a check to the church every time I get a paycheck. I sit down, and the first thing I do is write a check, Right? And then it goes in an envelope, and I hand it to my wife. She puts it in her purse, and when she comes, she drops it in the offering plate. Then it is out of sight, out of mind for me. So what do I do? I just stop and pray at that time. As I'm writing that check, Lord, I just want to worship you with this. Lord, if there's something that you want us to, to give different than what we've normally planned already to give, if you'll please show us that. I just want to worship God in my giving. You might need to do that as you text to give or however it is that you do your giving. Don't lose sight of the fact that it's worship. Jesus was blessed by that woman, not because she gave so much, but because she gave of her heart. And remember what he said about the, uh, the Macedonian Christians? He said, they gave not as we expected, but they gave of themselves to the Lord and therefore gave to this offering. It's always, always about worship. So back in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, let me remind you again what we just read there. It says, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Now, that is not a mandate that all giving be done on the first day of the week. What he's saying is your giving should be a regular part of your worship. Regular giving associated with worship. 
So they weren't to wait around for some really great preacher who could just um, convince them that they ought to give up their money. And when they heard that great message, then they would give. I, I'm a history buff and I read U.S. history because I find it interesting. I know you think I'm crazy, but that's what I like. And uh, in studying the life of Benjamin Franklin, I discovered that Franklin, unlike most of the founding fathers, was not really what we would call a Christian. Uh, he, he was a deist, really. He, he, he believed that there was a higher power, that there's someone out there pulling the strings. But beyond that, he didn't know. And he was pretty suspicious of Christianity. And at the time, um, there was a great evangelist by the name of George Whitfield. And Whitfield traveled throughout New England and, and all around the United States. And he did outdoor revival preaching. And the stories were told about Whitfield's preaching that literally it would be like, it would be like um, uh, Woodstock when he came to preach. And there'd be, there'd be literally 100,000 or more people out in a field somewhere. And he would stand up on a stump and he would preach. This is before microphones. Imagine that. He would preach to a group of 100,000 people without a microphone and everybody would talk about how amazing his message was. And then they would talk about the orphanages that he ran and how he would give an appeal that you would give to help support the orphanages. And the offerings would be huge because he was such a persuasive speaker. Franklin, hearing about this, said, I don't believe it. I think all of this is exaggerated, and I'm going to go find out for myself. But he said, when I go, he literally in his memoir, he wrote this, when I went, I left my purse at home, knowing that he would try to separate me from my money, okay? And then he went to the gathering, and he went to the back of the crowd as far away as he could possibly be in this massive crowd, and he said, when Whitfield preached. The power of his voice was so strong, it nearly knocked me over. And then he said this, and when he took his offering, it was so persuasive that I went home and got my purse and came back and gave him everything I had. Isn't that amazing? See, if you have a preacher who's good enough at this offering thing, he could talk you into separating yourself from your money. And what Jesus is saying is, it shouldn't take that. That opens you up to charlatans. That opens you up to people who are going to rip you off. It shouldn't take that. We should decide in our hearts to give. And we should give regularly. It should be a built-in part of our worship. Now back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And look again at what he says there, verses 1 through 5. Now, brethren, I wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, an abundance of joy and deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. In other words, they gave liberally, even though they were poor. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor to participation in the support of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they first gave of themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. This is the opposite of they got talked into it. They were begging for the privilege of giving. In other words, the, the leaders said, you know what, guys? You're barely making it yourself. Enough already. Don't bring any more money. And they said, we're begging you. Please let us give more. We want to honor God in this way by helping people. And he says, that's the example that I'm giving you. So why am I telling you all this? Because there are principles here. One is we give regularly. Another is we give as a part of the local church because the, sum, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. We're just members of the body. This isn't just about what I can do with my money because I got more than you have. This is about us coming together in the local church that God has called us to be a part of and giving regularly and giving sacrificially. They gave beyond their ability, it says. And I got to tell you, as long as you're living on your own ability, you are never going to experience the miraculous power of God. Because why would you ever need to? But when you give what he's called you to give, his blessings are unleashed and you see him working. So we give as stewards, we give through the local church, we give regularly, we give sacrificially. And then God's word says this, this is Philippians chapter four, verse 19, same context, which is giving. He says this, 
And my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. That brings us back to the wagon wheel. He will supply which of your needs? All. My God will supply all of your needs by giving you a little pittance now and then if you really beg for it. Is that what it says? No. According to his riches. How rich is God? With his riches and glory, our God is going to supply all of our needs. That's the wagon wheel. Relationship need met. Financial needs met. Emotional needs met. Spiritual needs met. Educational needs met. Health needs met. And the list goes on and on and on. My God shall supply all of your needs. God promises that when we place our trust in him, enough to obey him, he will supply each and every one of our actual needs. Now, you may learn in this process that your definition of need and God's definition of need are not exactly the same. But he will meet your needs. And so while it's a sacrifice to give, it should never be a burden to give. And while God calls us as individuals to give, it's never just about us as individuals. It's about the whole body which each member sacrificing so that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and God brings together that which he has given to the body in order to do the work and the mission that he has given to the body. Guys, one of the biggest mistakes we make in American or Western Christianity is that we have got this stupid idea that Christianity is a me and Jesus thing and not a we and Jesus thing. And we've just got it wrong. You can't live the abundant life without the rest of us. We need each other. That's why we emphasize things like grace groups. That's why we encourage you to do ministry together. That's why we encourage you to pray for one another. That's where every week we give you a connect card. We go, please fill this out. Let us know how you're doing. Drop it in the boxes on the walls so we can pray for you. Every one of those needs is getting prayed for countless times by people every week in this church. Why? Because it's a we and Jesus thing. It's wonderful that Jesus loves me that Jesus cares about me, that Jesus is focused on me. All of that's true, but, but I am a part of we. I'm a member of the body. And so, yeah, it's uncomfortable to talk about money. It's uncomfortable to give beyond what I'm comfortable giving. Um, but actually, giving regularly, giving sacrificially, giving as stewards, giving as a part of the body of Christ should be the most natural thing in the world for us to do because think of the example we're following. What example do we have to follow? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me take you to Philippians chapter 2. Because here in Philippians chapter 2, and Dave, if you get um, ready here, in Philippians chapter 2, I want to read to you, beginning in verse 1, Paul, writing to these Philippians, says this, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do you get the we thing there? Okay. And then he says this, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. And here comes the example. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This 
generous giving spirit, this sacrificial lifestyle? Did Jesus have a sacrificial lifestyle? I don't know. He left the throne of heaven surrounded by angels worshiping him to enter the womb of a, of a peasant girl that he might be born and laid in a manger so that he might grow up without sin and as the perfect sacrifice, lay his life down on the cross so that we, his enemies, might be set free. That's the example he's given us. And so I thought there's nothing that would be more fitting for us as we wrap up this series and we talk about this whole idea of generosity and this whole idea of sacrifice than to focus on the one who is the perfect sacrifice. He gathered his disciples together that night before he went to the cross. And over the supper table, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Take and eat it, all of you. And he dispersed it to them. And then he poured the wine and he said, and this wine is a new covenant in my blood. We tried the old covenant where man keeps rules and it never works. This is a covenant in blood. This is a once and for all thing. This is grace that just keeps flowing. This is salvation that isn't about your works and your, your uh, uh, worthiness. This is about God's goodness and God's grace. And he said, so I want you to take this bread and I want you to eat it. It's my body. I want you to take this wine, this grape juice. I want you to drink it because it is my blood. And then for as long as my people gather, I want you to do this in remembrance of me until I come back. And he is coming back, amen? He's coming back. And he's coming back to get his bride. And, and he has called us to be his bride, the body of Christ, reflecting him. This call to sacrifice, this is not something preachers made up. This is something Jesus lived out and wants to continue to live out through us. And so I'm going to have the ushers come forward. They're going to pass trays to you. There's uh, unleavened bread on there and some grape juice. Take a cracker, take a cup, just hold on to it until everybody's had a chance to be served. And let me say that this might be a great time for you to just um, do business with God. So after you've gotten the cracker and the juice or maybe while you're waiting for the tray, you might want to just take a moment and search your heart. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. If you're here visiting today, wanting to learn more about Jesus, but you don't yet know him as your Lord and Savior, this would have no significance to you. So you're welcome to just pass the tray to the next person. But for those of us who know Jesus, for those of us who have been set free by his sacrifice, this is our chance to worship him through remembrance. Maybe there's something going on in your life that you and Jesus need to talk about. Now's a great time to do that while we're passing the elements. Maybe you're here today and you know that you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus, but you need one. The wonderful news is there's no religious hoops for you to jump through. All you have to do is submit to him and invite him into your life. The scripture says that when we admit that we're sinners, we believe that Jesus is the son of God who paid the price for our sin. And we accept him on his terms that he be Lord and we be his servants. And we invite him into our lives. He'll forgive our sins, come and live in our hearts, and give us not only everlasting life, but abundant life. And if you haven't made that decision yet, right now is the time. And then you can take the cracker and the juice, and it will mean something to you. So right where you are, take the next few seconds to just pray and remember his sacrifice. Lord Jesus, there are no words for us to describe our absolute thanksgiving for what you've done. Every time we sit with juice and bread to focus and remember, 
we're moved, reminded that apart from you, we could do nothing. We couldn't save ourselves, so you saved us. We were in bondage to sin and death, so you set us free. You did all of it on the cross. We're so thankful. And God, it is our desire to walk in your footsteps. It's our desire to live a life of sacrifice that you've lived. It's our desire to trust you more and trust in things less. And so as we wrap up this series and we think about material things, God, I pray you would get our eyes focused on spiritual things and that we would realize then that the material thing is a reflection of the spiritual reality. We belong to you, every spoke on the wheel. May you be glorified now as we worship you in the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.